You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world, brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center here in Beijing. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and I'll be your host. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the Carnegie Tsinghua podcast one of Carnegie Tsinghua's resident scholars, Dr. Wang Tao, who just recently became a father. Congratulations. Thank you, Paul. Wang Tao is a resident scholar in the Energy and Climate Program based here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. He links the work of Carnegie's programs in Beijing with Carnegie's global centers in Washington, Moscow, Beirut, and Brussels. And his research fo focuses on China's climate and energy policy with a particular attention to unconventional oil and natural gas transportation, electric vehicles, and international climate negotiations. Today we're going to discuss uh, the topic of one of Wang Tao's uh, recent articles on China's New Silk Road. Tao, to begin with, uh, let's talk about uh, the New Silk Road, which Xi Jinping announced uh, in the fall of 2013 on a trip to Central Asia in Astana. Uh, he announced this uh, New Silk Road project uh, and the main objectives of what is called today One Belt and One Road strategy. Can you give us a sense for what the objectives are for this? What's the background here? Sure, Paul. First of all, the One Belt, One Road initiative is the first ever comprehensive and systematic overseas investment and development initiative made by China. Mm -hmm. It aims to strengthen the connectivities and economic uh, cooperations with the countries along the road and also the belts, and to, through investments, trade infrastructure constructions and also personnel or cultural exchanges to deepen China's economic integrations with those countries and also to enhance China's presence and influence and prevent China's existence and potentially in the future China's uh, power in those regions to make China more influential in those critical regions to China's uh, diplomatic relations. Mm -hmm. But also this is a way to comfort the neighboring countries and also other developed countries for their concerns over China's rise. Yeah. There are a lot of concerns over what uh, China would be and uh, if China become a superpower in the future, what would be the implications on them. So this is really to bring them into the economic benefit and to share them with the spillover effect of China's integration um, to enjoy some of the benefits of economic and also the exchange uh, to help them to benefit from this uh, program. But if you look at the big picture of this, there is a significant feature of this map, um, which is the energy. The mm. energy investment and also the infrastructures related to energy is playing a very key role in China's overseas development, especially along the One Belt and One Road, one road uh, uh, the route. Mm -hmm. um, it, it includes, for example, most of the important oil and gas exporters to China and also covers the most important uh, critical uh, energy trade routes that China has. For example, the one through Central Asia to import gas and oil and also mm -hmm. the one uh, in the Southeast Asia through Malacca Strait accounts mm -hmm. for almost 80% of China's oil uh, import. Mm -hmm. So this initiative also has a very strong fla uh, flavor to China's energy supply security. Mm -hmm. So part of it, uh, an effort to convince uh, countries on China's periphery that that not only will its rise uh, not threaten them, but 
they will in fact benefit from China's rise. So exactly. part of a part of a charm offensive of sorts. Um, but you also focus in on the energy objectives here that are also important and and as you say will play a dominant role um, in the in the one belt uh, one road strategy. Can you give us a sense of what kind of energy and infrastructure projects and investments uh, do you think are being planned or already underway along the Maritime Silk Road and the 21st Century Silk Road? And the Maritime Silk Road is obviously the, the sea-based uh, portion of this, and the 21st Century Silk Road, which starts out through Central Asia and beyond, is, is the land component of this. What, is, uh, what kind of projects are being planned, and what will be the impact of these projects on China's energy security? In fact, China already made a huge investment along both of the routes. For example, if you look at the, uh, the land roads, uh, which they call the uh, Silk Road Belt, all the way from China to Central Asia and towards Middle East, and, and finally reach Europe, there's a lot of countries that China already made investment, particularly, for example, the Central Asia investment in uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, in terms of oil and gas investment. But also, there are a lot of investment China already made along the uh, Maritime Silk Road in the middle, in the uh, in the Southeast Asia, and all the way towards India and uh, and, and 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 Africa. Um, there are different types of the investment China has made. For example, some of them are direct investment made by the Chinese state-owned oil companies in Sudan, in Libya, in Middle East, in other places. There are lots of them. But also, there are uh, sometimes the government-backed uh, agreements, which is called the loan for oil. So that type of agreement will. Uh, give China's access to the oil and in return China offer favorable loans to the country like the cases we have in uh, certain in some of the African countries and also Russia in terms of oil uh, oil bills and there are also uh, some of the favorable loans for uh, related energy investment and infrastructure infrastructures in those countries uh, offered by Chinese owned banks mm -hmm. But, but these, this is tough business. This is not easy business. These are the conditions in these countries vary. Um, some countries uh, are, are at a higher level of governance and, and security. I assume there are a, a, a number of risks associated with this when it comes to Chinese SOEs and companies going into these uh, regions of the world and pursuing energy projects and investments along these Silk Road routes. Can you talk about some of the successes and failures that Chinese SOEs can learn from uh, in terms of their own previous experiences in investing overseas, especially in developing regions, fairly complicated regions in the world. You're absolutely right on this point. Most of the nations along this route are actually developing countries, mm -hmm. and often the case is, is they are experiencing the social and political uh, instabilities during the investment or during the, long, the time of the project, and sometimes also the lack of the transparent uh, legal system. So there is lack of protections when something happens to mm -hmm. China's investment. There has been a lot of successes in some of the investment, for example, China's early investment in Africa and in Angola has given China a large quantity of the oil equities, and now Angola become China's number two oil exporters after mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. But also there are many cases that we heard different uh, kind of the uh, risks affecting China's investment. There are different types, for example, uh, the the basic ones is like the asymmetric information uh, of the uh, destination countries will impose a huge risks in the finance term, financial terms of China's investments. Some of the investments they made uh, 
after they went to the country, they realized the situation was much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So the cost is become much higher than they bid for. So like the case in uh, Saudi Arabia, China was bidding for a highway, high-speed railway, and then realized that at the end, the cost was twice as the price they've been offered. And then they still managed to do it because they think this is important mm -hmm. to maintain the relationship because particularly this railway was somehow related to the religion. Um, uh, uh, has a religious reasons or factors mm. in there. Mm. But there are also uh, cases where China's investment has been affected by the local environment issues or uh, political risks. For example, we have heard the case in Libya when the civil war break out, China has to evacuate more than uh, 36,000 people over two yeah. weeks um, because of the risks mm -hmm. that imposed. And also there are uh, oppositions in, for example, in Myanmar, on certain investment China made, um, this time in uh, hydropower Mison, uh, because yeah. of the environment issues. So they all has to be taken into account. But also there are new type of geopolitical risks that China has to uh, start to realize and face in, uh, in their investment. For example, the, the uh, investment China made in Russia and the deal that we signed with Russia on the natural gas is now already being affected by the uh, intensified fight between Russia and Europe and America. The mm -hmm. section of the technology on oil and gas mm -hmm. already affects China's the prospect of Russia delivering the gas to China. So there are a lot of risks they have to consider, um, which is the lessons they have to they're going to learn over the time. Yeah, given given these risks um, that that SOEs and Chinese companies and Chinese energy companies face when investing in these countries, which as you point out, many have weak governance systems, uh, high levels of, of instability, political and other instability. Um, will China be looking to play an enhanced role uh, in, in, in the future in securing, in, in enhancing the security in these regions and in potentially building governance capacity in these countries, especially where China has strong commercial and energy interests, and those interests uh, we see are growing. It's certainly to China's natural interest to protect the safety of its personnel and also the investments and also commercial interests. But um, we have seen that in the cases, for example, Sudan and mm -hmm. Libya, China already kind of carry out a huge uh, or massive uh, scale of the campaign to rescuing people and also assets as much as they can when uh, emergency breaks out in those countries. But most of the cases we have seen so far are uh, post-crisis management or emergency plan or uh, damage fixing. Um, China still feels like it's not in the position um, to proactively act in some of the countries, partly also because the uh, long interference principle China has in its diplomatic relation uh, um, uh, strategies. So it has uh, let China been very, very reluctant to uh, exercise their power and also influence in certain countries. But I think in the future with more of the investment coming from China and from Chinese companies, especially now this year in 2014, last year in 2014, we have seen China's overseas development investment for the first time ever exceed mm -hmm. China's investment received so uh, from the foreign country. So there will be more and more uh, assets and investment and stake in the future and more people in uh, overseas doing all sorts of projects mm -hmm. um, and that will be a huge pressure for China to take measures um, to prevent certain risks from uh, breaking out and take more proactive role in the future to 
maintain security and to enhance the governance in the destination countries that we have very high stake. We've, we've talked about projects and investments in, in Central Asia along the land uh, component of this, of this strategy. We've talked about Southeast Asia as well. Um, but I've seen a, a Xinhua map uh, of this um, uh, new Silk Road strategy. And this goes beyond these regions. And it, in fact, goes through the Middle East and beyond, uh, connecting, I believe, in, in Venice, Italy. Um, let's talk about the Middle East a little bit. How does the Middle East fit into this strategy, into this new Silk Road strategy? Well, Middle East, for sure, it's very important for China's energy security. If we look at the data at the moment, last year, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia alone accounts for almost one-fifth of China's oil imports. And if you look at the whole region, the Middle East and also North America, uh, sorry, North Africa, the, the region accounts for more than half of China's oil import, or 30% of China's total oil consumption. So it's, per, it's, it's um, absolutely crucial for China to continue to be able to import oil from Middle East. And even for the natural gas, um, Qatar is now the first, the largest uh, uh, liquefied and natural gas supplier to China, and also Iran as the world's largest, third largest natural gas producer. They also could potentially become a very important supplier for China in terms of natural gas. Mm -hmm. And given the huge demand, um, the growth of the oil and the gas demand in China, and particularly because of the pressure to tackle the air pollution, China will continue to consume more and more gas and oil. And this is crucial for China to maintain the supply from those regions. So we would say that uh, Middle East is very crucial for China's energy security and is going to be even further in the future. Even with today a lot of development in the unconventional oil, um, the Middle East oil is still the among the cheapest and also uh, within the uh, close proximity to China. So that makes uh, Middle East oil the first priority or, or favorable choice for Chinese uh, oil companies to import. Um, and with the, with the recent fall of the oil price, this is actually going to make the Middle East oil even more attractive to China um, because of the uh, certain type of oil in Middle East is very suitable for China's uh, refinery capacity. China already built a large fleet of refineries that is uh, designated for the Middle East oil. So with the fall of the price, China is going to see a large profit in those refinery sectors, and that makes them very attractive to them. Um, but if we look at the investment and the loan, then you will see a very interesting divergences between the pictures, uh, between the significant role that Middle East is going to play in China's future energy security and China's investment and loan in this region. If we look, if we compare the figure, China's um, in an in the previous research we did in Carnegie, the China's oil future, we compared the um, accumulated loan and the investment in the oil, sec oil sectors uh, made by Chinese oil companies between, the ten between 2008 and 2013. Russia and Euro-Asia actually comes the first, which accounts for about 150 billion in uh, US dollars uh, in the last five years. But then Middle East, only about one-tenth of that size, much smaller um, comparing with uh, Russia and, 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 and Euro-Asia, and also much smaller compared with Latin America and other, uh, and other areas. So this reflects kind of like a reluctancy mm. or uh, hesitations in China's oil companies to step into these areas mm. to, pro, 
play kind of role that they already played in the uh, in the South American and Africa um, epidemic in those areas to encourage them to 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 have much deeper engagement and to um, to give them huge investment and loans in those countries. And I think that is particularly because in China's view, the Middle East is probably one of the most uh, complicated geopolitics in the world. It's also being intertwined because uh, intertwined with uh, very complicated cultural and religious reasons. And, and China feels very, very um, reluctant or, uh, if you like, unconfident mm. to uh, step into these areas and uh, to be active investment and uh, engage into the internal politics in those areas. But also, there is a very uh, long, very strong and long-standing interest that has been led by U.S. in this certain area. Mm -hmm. And I think this is not the um, right timing that China feels to be um, play a very active role in this region. And more, uh, instead, China is trying to um, play under this framework that already been established by the U.S. and also the Western world in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and trying to focus just mostly on the commodity trade. So that's. Um, explains why China imports so much of the oil from the Middle East, but not doing uh, the uh, kind of comparable size of investment and loans to those countries. But certainly, that doesn't mean the Middle East is not important to China. Instead, it's too important, so China doesn't really want to step into too early and mess it up. Mm. You mentioned in the other regions of the world that you anticipate over time China beginning to play a more enhanced role on maintaining stability mm. um, and, 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 and building capacity for governance. How do you see China's contributions in the Middle East playing out over time? If it's not the right time now, how will this evolve? I think over time, that's true that China will also feel it's necessary to play its own part in uh, securing the or improving the maintenance, sorry, to uh, to improving the governance and mm -hmm. stabilities in this particular region because of the high stake that China has. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still unclear exactly what role and uh, which way China could uh, play in this region and on the very complicated issues. But I think there is also a huge um, opportunity for China to work together with US to enhance the um, security and stability of this region. And China is already facing that pressure if you look at Iraq, China is now uh, the largest investor in Iraq after the after the Iraqi war, um, and now their own interest has been been uh, threatened by the sudden rise of the IS. Yeah. So there is a huge um, stake there. China has and risk, and China has very strong incentive to make sure that it's not going to be affected. Thank you for your for for my final question. Uh, one of shift slightly to something you mentioned, um, falling oil prices. Um, at the OPEC meeting in December, uh, Saudi Arabia decided not to make cuts in its oil production. Um, in Saudi's calculus, this policy puts pressure on Russia over Ukraine. It puts pressure on the Iranians, Saudi Arabia's foe. Mm -hmm. It discourages investment potentially in the U.S. tight oil and shale gas oil industry. Uh, and it also helps to preserve Saudi's market share. Can you give the, uh, our listeners a sense for what you believe are the implications of falling oil prices for China, the costs and the benefits, the winners and the losers? Certainly. The impacts of the falling oil prices on China is ver are very mixed. Um, of course, as a big oil importer, China could benefit 
significantly from the falling of the oil prices. And also that means huge profits for the oil refineries in China. Um, but there are also some of the heavy industries will be saved by the falling prices of the fuel. They will be able to sustain longer. And that is not a good news for China, especially now we're trying to fight the pollution. On the other hand, there is also um, encouragement for people to drive in more because now you look at you look around in China, the oil price was back to uh, almost three or four years ago, and people feel like this is now again they can afford to drive more, and then and also means more emissions and more congestion, more pollution in the big cities like Beijing. So that also uh, is a big contribution to the air pollution. So we have to understand why. Um, this mixed impact is very difficult to evaluate and then um, understand why Chinese government actually decided to raise the tax for the oil when the oil price is falling because we don't really want to encourage people for driving more, uh, to using more oil and also to save some of the uh, inefficient, uh, outdated, dirty industries out of the oil prices. But when, never, uh, when later the oil price back to normal or, or to the higher level prices, we find our way uh, again in the difficulty to find enough oil to supply. But there is also another um, unintended result that we um, actually got caught in between. China has made a lot of investment, as you mentioned before, in the oil and gas field overseas. Many of them are based on certain assumptions of the oil prices, and many of them are actually very high, for example, over 80 or even over $100 per barrel. And now, <coughs> because the oil price suddenly falls so much, many of these investments become economically economically uh, unfeasible. Mm -hmm. So now we have to, again, review all the investments we made, and some of the decisions has to be made, whether to delay the constructions or development, or to um, resell them and, and, and cut the cost, uh, cut the loss. Um, but this, again, ref um, uh, illustrates the kind of risks that we made when we, uh, the, the kind of risks we face when we made a huge investment in the oil and the gas. Um, overseas, and particularly because Chinese oil companies is particularly interested in investing in the unconventional oil and gas fields overseas, like in North America, in uh, in South America, and also Africa, that are the high prices assets. Um, and when the oil prices suddenly fall, or um, the demand is not growing as many people expected, like the case in China, then their investment become a problem. So we have to be very cautious in the future on that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Wang Tao, for sharing your, your insights today uh, with our podcast. And thank you as well for all the uh, important uh, research contributions you've made to the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. It seems now wherever I go, whether it's to visit Carnegie Centers uh, overseas in Europe and, and the United States and other places, I'm always being asked how, we, how I can help them arrange to get Dr. Wang Tao to come talk to their, to their audiences. So you're your profile has uh, certainly gone up, and your uh, your work is is being read by um, uh, increasingly uh, larger number of people around the world. So thank you for that. That's it. <laughs> That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. If you'd like to read uh, Wang Tao's article on China's New Silk Road uh, and other recent publications by Dr. Wang Tao, you can find those on the Carnegie Tsinghua website at www.carnegiechinghua.org. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next time.